0: All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Hope that everybody has had a nice, uneventful start to the week. Probably an easy Wednesday that allows you to sit here completely undistracted, like us. Um, I'm being very facetious at this point. I'm not assuming anyone's had an easy week. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would... uh, Make our hearts and our minds right let 's do that. Will someone grab that back door so that the uh, altar uh, coffee machine won 't be a distraction. That coffee machine there 's been so many times where like i 've seen myself and others standing before it with their cups, just waiting, <laughs> waiting for it to bring its offering um, it 's pretty funny let 's pray, Lord. we are incredibly thankful that you have given us the word and that we get to open it tonight and and dig into it. I'm also thankful, Lord, that we are sanctified by the word of truth and that that gives us a little bit more understanding as to the importance of this time that we gather. Lord, I pray, uh, I know that a lot of people in this room have already had an incredibly long week and it's only Wednesday. I know that many sitting here have had hard conversations, they've had circumstances that are undesirable, they've had to respond to issues that they'd rather not have to respond to. And Lord, in your divine timing, that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. And so I do pray that this would be a break for many of us, but rather than being a break from reality, I pray that our time in the Word tonight would inform our reality I pray that our time in the word would not just be an escape but rather something that helps us to know how to get back to work tomorrow or reengage our family later. Lord, you you're incredibly good in your timing and in your word and I'm thankful that what we see with our eyes and how we feel is is not our reality, rather um there are eternal and ultimate things that are happening right now that you give your children insight into, and it's really encouraging. Uh, So I pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds and allow us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds tonight. We humble ourselves before you. I pray that we would submit to your word as you reveal it to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we covered uh, Genesis chapters 42 through 43. If this is your first time with us, We are going through Genesis, and when we're done, we'll go to Exodus, and so on and so forth. Uh, But we generally take it a verse at a time, Um, maybe finish a chapter or two per Wednesday or less, depending, not normally more. But last week, we looked at chapters 42 and 43, and tonight we'll be looking at 44 and 45. But essentially, Joseph's brothers, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers about 20 years ago. And so Joseph's brothers are in Canaan, and there's a famine and a drought, and they need grain, or else they'll die. And if they die, their families die, and their livestock dies, and it could be the end of a people. Uh, it's a fairly dire circumstance. So they heard that there was Egypt in there was Egypt in grain. They heard that there was grain in Egypt. And uh, the reason they heard that is because God had divinely ordained that their brother, who they sold into slavery, would come into power in Egypt and set up a system so that there was actually grain for people to eat. And what we found in those chapters was that Joseph uh, had not just moved into a place of power where he affected a small location or even Egypt, which was a superpower of the world at the time, but Joseph had moved into a position where he had influence had influence. Uh, worldwide. It said that the entire earth was going to Egypt for grain. And the reason that he had the insight that he had was because God had revealed to him in a dream that there would be a certain amount of time where there'd be famine and drought, and then there'd be a certain amount of time uh, where there'd be recovery, and there'd be another time where things would be reestablished, where there'd be good crops and enough for everybody to eat. But until that time, they had to make really wise plans so that when all the bank accounts drained, and there wasn't anything in the field that they could survive. And we see Joseph working very wisely through difficult circumstances. So his brothers hear that there's grain down in Egypt, and so they go there, and Joseph recognizes them. However, they do not recognize Joseph because he is very Egyptian at this point. He's, he's made his way into the culture. You know, we said all that last week. We know the joke. He walked like an Egyptian, but um, he... Uh, he, he did not reveal his identity to his brothers, and in fact, what he did was he tested his brothers very wisely, and he'll continue to do that this week. But what we had at the end of those chapters last week was he is having a feast. They have, he, remember, he sent them home with grain, but he put the money back in their sack, and so they all thought, oh, no, a mistake's been made. It's going to look like we ripped the Egyptians off. We're going to have to get, make our way back, and eventually, the famine's so bad, they sinned The brother's back, and and the servant of Joseph's house says, I received your money. Um, That's a blessing from the Lord. And we see this undeserved favor given to them, which should not be completely unfamiliar to us. And uh, what we see is by the end of chapter uh, 43, there is a feast in which Joseph and his brothers are celebrating together and uh, breaking bread together. Uh, as Hebrews, but they still don't know who Joseph is. They still don't understand that this is the, the little brother that they sold, or the brother that they sold uh, into uh, slavery. And so we pick up in chapter 44, verse 1. Remember, they don't know who he is. They just had a party together, had a good old time, but now it's the next day, and they're moving on. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house. Remember, Joseph's house is really well ordered. We we were reminded last week that, you know, here we're, you hear that phrase, then the steward of Joseph's house, because Joseph has a house that though he is over a lot of important things and he makes a lot of important decisions. And if he, if he doesn't make wise decisions, it could affect, I mean, when you have worldwide influence and you make an unwise decision, you could have a negative effect worldwide. That's what the result is there. And so he is making a lot of decisions to take care of a lot of people, but not to the detriment of the health of his house. His house at this point appears to be very well ordered, and the stewards know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and how to move. Now, what we find is the only way that you can be a person who makes a lot of decisions and tends to a lot of circumstances without having a house that's in disarray is you have to have help, there has to be accountability, and you have, to, you have to be able to trust people, and you have to have people who are trustworthy. And so here he orders his steward uh, of, of the house. He says, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. So here we go again. This happened once before. Surely it wouldn't happen again. Put, give them as much as they can carry. Bless them. Then take the money that they were going to buy all this with and the money they were going to return. Put it all back in the sack. So this is a huge blessing. But if you are guilty of something, sometimes you can't enjoy the blessing that the Lord has given you because you think, oh, this is going to backfire at any minute. This is going to backfire. It's like someone does something nice. Oh, this is going to go sideways at any point because I'm guilty of sin. And so guilt can affect the way you receive a blessing. We're going to see it happen again. Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup. So they just had dinner with Joseph and they saw Joseph drinking from this fancy silver cup at the table. And Joseph says, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. Who's the youngest? Benjamin. With his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Why do you think that Joseph would do this after they celebrated together? What hasn't, uh, why do you think he hasn't revealed his identity yet? And what do they know about Joseph thus far? We'll take it a, one question at a time. Why do you think Joseph's going to do this? Why, why is he going to mess with him even more? Is he just messing with him? Is it more than that? Yes. <coughs> yep. They've already proven to not be trustworthy. And so if you're looking at this thinking, man, why is Joseph messing with him? Joseph's not just messing with them. Exactly what you said. He's testing them. It's okay to test someone when they have previously proven to be completely unworthy of trust. If someone stole from you many, many times or put your life in jeopardy, whatever, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily the Christian thing to do to just say, uh, okay, I trust you. That's not very helpful. Sometimes it's better that there is a testing so that you can discern whether or not someone's trustworthy, whether or not you can um, uh, believe them. Uh, there's a lot of different ways of saying it, but essentially, this is testing. What do they know about Joseph so far? Yes. Remember when he asked, like, a few of the right questions, and they just sort of spilled their guts? I got a brother and a dad, and I stole something in fifth grade, and they just kind of spill it. Uh, they, yeah, he. They know that he knows about their family situation. What, what else do they know about Joseph? He's merciful. Yeah, they came thinking, oh man, he's going to kill us and steal our donkeys. Remember that? He's going to take our donkeys, and instead, he fed their donkeys. So sometimes, if you want to be merciful to someone, just feed their donkeys. What else? He's powerful. Very powerful. Why do you think that he didn't reveal his identity at that dinner? I mean, they're all sitting around having a good old time. Clearly, uh, I think one thing that came out in that dinner is that he's a Hebrew because the Hebrews and Egyptians don't dine together. It's an abomination is what is said in the chapter, but yet they're sitting at the same table having a sweet time. Um, why do you think he didn't reveal his identity at that dinner? Yeah. Yeah, some barriers have been broken down. He can now ask some more questions, figure out, is there any change? And we're going to find out at the end of this chapter. I mean, they keep talking about dad, but he doesn't believe them. Why should he believe them? They might be pulling for the sympathy plea. Oh, our dad's back home. Please don't keep us here. He might be thinking, I don't even know if my dad is alive. And we're actually going to find that out at the end of the chapter. I spoiled the ending for you. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, one uh, commentator, I'll, I just like the way he put it, he said that that, uh, um, that Joseph is skillfully trying the dispositions of his brethren. I mean, if you're the brethren, you're thinking, he's being mean. And if you're having a hard time with this and you're looking and thinking, man, what is, why does he keep doing this? He is skillfully trying the dispositions of his brethren. Look at verse 3 through 13. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. I think it's written that way on purpose. He's going to steal our donkeys. Look, he fed our donkeys. Now we're leaving on our donkeys. God's good. The men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after these men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? I mean, Joseph's house is well-ordered. This is what you're going to do, and when you do that, this is what you're going to say. Don't vary it. Just say this, and then this is how you're going to move. Up, follow after these men. Why have you paid evil? Say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. What is divination? Yeah, telling the future by some means that doesn't include God. So it's sort of a, a, sort of related to sorcery, divination is a telling of the future by means that don't have anything to do with God. And so uh, it is a godless thing, and it is a self-serving thing, and it is not indicative of God's people. But the words used here, we'll come back to it in a minute. You have done evil in doing this. So he's telling his stewards, go, overtake them, and then take the cup out, and you're going to say this, and we're going to see what happens. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words they said to him. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? It's funny how quickly they're like, before they were like, oh, everything's bad, we're evil, but they had like a good dinner with Joseph, and then they're accused of something else, and they're, why would you ever accuse such men as us of such a horrendous thing? Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing, exclamation point. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So essentially he's saying, no way is it true. So check our stuff and you can kill whoever has it. And not only can you kill whoever has it, we'll all be your servants. He's like pretty sure no one stole this guy's silver cup. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So, again, look at how Joseph's servant is following orders. Who's calling the shots here? Joseph's calling the shots here. He doesn't say, okay, cool. I'll kill whoever I, found, whoever I find with the cup, and you'll all be my servants. He says, we'll do as, as it has been said, uh, and the rest of you shall be innocent, but whoever has the cup shall be my servant, just like Joseph ordered. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Why would they quickly lower their sack to the ground? Innocence, right there. They're eager to clear their name. He quickly lowered the sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack and he searched. He searched the steward of the house, beginning with the eldest. Oh, can you feel the tension? This ordained tension. I'm going to start with the eldest and we'll end with Benjamin, I'm going to the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Bum, bum, bum. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. I don't know why the donkey is such a central character, but it's funny. Notice again how the servant of Joseph's house knows exactly how to maneuver. The terms of the exercise have already been, outline, been outlined. Now, here's an encouragement. Is anyone having a hard time with Joseph's actions here, and Why? I mean, when you're looking at the brothers, you're thinking, Man, Joseph, come on. Is anyone having a hard time with it? I did, like the first ten times I read this. Yeah, it seems deceptive. That's why we would have a hard time with it. Is, is there any other reason we would have a hard time with it? Is he being deceitful? I know. Take the mask off, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. At this point, if we just say, you know what? I'm trying to learn about God. I've gotten to Genesis 44. Joseph is like more powerful than any one other God's children. And he's a liar. He practices divination. And he's deceiving his brothers. And you know what? If that's how God's people are, I'm done. That would be a bad place to stop. It's really important to keep reading the rest of the story. Because what we're going to see here is an amazing amount of wisdom. Some, the kind of wisdom that you don't just display with a quick answer. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could just reveal to everybody how wise we were with quick answers? That's not how it works. It takes time. It's largely inefficient. And it takes being in a relationship with people, having discussions with people, working through people. And the end is not to show how wise you are. The end is to be wise for God's glory. This is all about God's glory here. So if you're having a hard time with Joseph here... I I was too, and I don't think it's abnormal, but you can't stop right here. You have to keep reading the story. Read the whole story before drawing any conclusions, because the movement here is really quite masterful. Look at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. Of course, he was still there. He was waiting on them to return. They fell before him to the ground. This is important because their demeanor when they return to Joseph shows someone who's like, okay, I understand power. I understand my role. Because they could have gone back. I mean, we know how these brothers are. Couldn't you just picture Judah going, Joseph, what's the deal, man? We didn't steal that. I mean, he could have been just this. I mean, if you've been accused of something that you didn't do, what would you do there? Would you go and throw yourselves at, at the feet of this guy? They're humbly coming in. We're seeing movement in these boneheaded brothers that maybe God's working on their hearts in this this situation as well. So they fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say, my lord? What shall we say to you, my lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said to them, Joseph said to them, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, is it possible for them to go up in peace to their father? No, this is like this divinely ordered quandary. You can't go up in peace to your father. Something else has to happen. There has to be some other circumstance intervening here for, for you to be able to go in peace to your father. Notice how carefully Joseph chooses his words concerning divination. Why do you think that he has said what he said? did choose his words carefully. Why do you think? Yeah. Exactly. He, he just creates a question. He doesn't make a statement about what he has done or what he is doing or how it all came about. He says, do you not know that a man like me, what's a man like him? A man appointed to power by Pharaoh, right? Right. Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? Question mark. There's no statement that's been made there. Has Joseph practiced divination? No. He told the steward to put the cup in the bag and go get him. So at at this point, he's keeping a convincing cover, and he's putting them in the place of needing redemption, and he's putting them in the place of needing forgiveness. Hear the gospel story in this. We're starting to see some indications that there may be some parallels. So they are there. And uh, he says, don't you know I can practice divination? Kind of like, did you really think you could get away with it? And uh, so they're still led to believe, man, th- this, this is an Egyptian or a, a guy in this place who is who's practicing divination. But he's also said that he fears God. So if they're paying attention, they're going to be saying, wait, th- this doesn't add up. But it's a, this is a quandary. This situation is very, very difficult. To this point, my other question, what do we know about Judah? Judah. Because Judah is the one who steps up and says stuff as they throw themselves at his feet. What do we know about Judah? No need to be detailed. Just what do we know about Judah? Say that again. Okay. What else? Stepping up a little bit here. Uh, Re- Reuben was the one who stepped up before. Is Reuben the oldest? I don't know. There's 12 of them. came up and kind of the right thing. Uh-huh. kind of stepped up there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Reuben last time said, you can trust me. And <laughs> he was like, pretty sure I can't trust you. If you've read that story, you know why. What else do we know about Judah? Yeah? Relationship with Tamar? Pretty wicked thing there. The the who, who who stepped up to convince the brothers not to kill him? Judah and Reuben both had something to say in that time. What else do we know? So far, what I'm getting at is I haven't heard anybody say, well, we know that Judah's awesome, and he's always going to do the right thing. No, Judah's track record stinks, generally. Um, He has not done great things. Here he's stepping up and sort of like, I mean, if we're reading this and we're in the context, we're saying, that's sort of uncharacteristic of Judah. Judah's saying, "Uh, won't you keep all of us? We'll we'll all pay the price. Uh, I'm going to speak to you the way I should be speaking to you. We should be reading this and thinking, this is not really characteristic of Judah and when something isn't characteristic of Judah it may mean that Judah's character is changing yep yep we saw him stepping up a little bit there and here he's getting to put that to the test exactly and he's about to go into even more what he said nice um, uh, let's see here and why don't the brothers want to return without Benjamin just to make sure we're on the same page Yeah, they promised they wouldn't. To who? And why did they have to make that promise? So he wouldn't go down to Sheol with his gray hair, give him a heart attack? Yeah. And and Benjamin was the last uh, son that Joseph had from Rachel. And Benjamin and Joseph are both brothers from Rachel. Now, it gets confusing because uh, Jacob had three too many wives. And so, just they're from Rachel. Look at verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 34. As I read this, I encourage you, observe, 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 and pay attention to all the details. Import your senses, step into this, and see what this would be like. Judah steps up to the plate, and here we go. Verse 18 through 34. Then Judah went up to him, Joseph, the one who has this great power. He says, oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his brother saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. What do you think Joseph thinks when he hears that? His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Judah's making an appeal to this powerful guy based on just basic family dynamics. He's saying, you know what? You're a guy. Surely you can understand. My dad loves this son, and we can't return without him. His father loves him. Verse 21. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy a little food, because they were out of food and times were very hard. We said, we cannot go down If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. At this point, Jacob doesn't understand how strong the appeal is that he's making. He's not making an appeal about his own father only. Joseph's hearing an appeal on behalf of his father. This is a big deal. God is all in this. Now, look at verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Jacob has stepped up, or Judah has stepped up to the plate for his father and for his family. This is incredible. Here we see that Judah realizes that there is a sin that is being counted against his younger brother. And he wishes to step in and take the wrath of Joseph, allowing Benjamin to go free. There is foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in all these verses. You're going to count a sin against him. Please count it against me. It sounds like the story of Jesus. Our sin is our sin, unlike Benjamin's. They're sinners, no doubt. He didn't steal the cup. We stole the cup, ruined the cup, stomped the cup, spit on the cup. That's our sin. And Jesus says, don't count that against them. Count it against me. So Judah steps up to the plate and he wishes to step in and take the wrath of Joseph allowing Benjamin to go free. Consider. Listen to these details. If there had not been a famine, if there had been not been a false accusation and a really uncomfortable and life-threatening predicament, Judah's character would not have been tested and we would not have seen the spiritual growth that we see here. Hear that? If you're praying for uh, uh, the wind at your back and blue skies and just eliminate anything that might be hard, consider what happened with Judah here. This is incredible. What is the normal thing to do when things go south? You just got bad news. What's the normal thing to do? Really bad news. Pow pout, cry, try to pin it on someone, whine. (laughs) Just real quick, has anybody in this room gotten like what seems to be undesirable news um, in the last week? Any bit of undesirable news at all? Okay, handful. Okay, for for those who didn't get any undesirable news, welcome to a unique week freak out, we complain, we vex, we whine, we call everybody that we can think of who might feel our pain with us, Um, we don't normally say, you know what, this is for the good of my character, which is for the good of God's glory, my strength will be faith, my strength will be faithened, (laughs) my faith will be strengthened through this trial, my words will be more eloquent when it's over, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, this is, uh, when things go south, we don't normally have this perspective, which is why it is important for us to read our Bibles and study how this happens again and again and again and again. Very rarely do God's people walk in, get the exact news <laughs> that they want to get, walk out rejoicing, everything goes off without a hitch, and then we move on to the next scene. Very very rarely. So uh, um, are we going to be surprised? Are things going to be hard along the way? Absolutely. But let's not forget this pattern we see in our Bibles over and over again. Like the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When things go south, all of those things you kind of want to just throw them out the window. I don't want to be self-controlled, and I sure don't want to be patient. This shouldn't happen. This was this. This is that. Whatever. I mean, we don't generally sober-mindedly address things when they don't go according to plan. And Here we see this story where had there not been a famine or a false accusation or really uncomfortable or life-threatening predicament, Judah wouldn't even have had the opportunity to step up to the plate. His character has grown through this, and it's for God's glory, and ultimately it's going to be for the good of a people. It's pretty cool. Turn to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. We're going to go ahead and drive this point home. Verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? I mean, think of Joseph here. How long will you guys throw down on me? It's am in slavery. How long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall on, and a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. Think about Potiphar's wife. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. That happened. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You, this psalm is beautiful because you see these temporary circumstances affecting someone's very real life, and he goes to my salvation, my fortress, my redemption. I'm waiting on God to come back. I, I, my, for God alone, my soul waits. When I really boil it down, there's nothing else to be waiting on other than the return of my God who cares greatly for my soul. All these other things are very, very temporary. And we need that perspective when the temporary things stink or frustrate you or whatever. What do y'all think it means to have a quiet soul? Contentment, like a rare jewel. Truly at peace, is that what you said? Humility, coming low to have that. Or you have that, and you come in low because of it. Now, y'all have heard me talk about this before, but Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And, like, some people are nice, and they make some good points at the front and wait about halfway through the book to, like, kick you in the face spiritually. And, uh, and he does it on page two, where he says that uh, some men are like a shiny shoe shiny leather shoe, where outside it's nice and clean and shiny, but inside it pinches the flesh. And he says, so it is with your soul. It has a language that only the Lord can hear. And so outwardly you may be all smiles and everything's great, while inwardly you are vexing and fretting and complaining in an unending manner, and the Lord alone hears the voice of your soul. For God alone my soul waits in silence. It's not enough just to keep your mouth shut. That's good first step for a lot of us. But for for your soul to be silent shows that you are trusting in him at all times, O people, pouring out your heart before him. It's okay to pour out your heart before God. And part of that pouring out should be, Lord, make my soul silent, really waiting on you. Whatever other circumstantial things are going on, let me not be completely shaken by them, but rather put my hope in you. This is real life stuff. I mean, this is... (laughs) We don't gather to talk about fairy tales in a far, far away land long, long ago. God really wants this to happen. He he, he expects that your soul is waiting in silence. And he not only expects something that you can't achieve on your own, he enables you by the work of the Spirit to actually live in this manner. That's a sweet encouragement, a really sweet encouragement. Because generally a lot of us stink at it. Try, Try to do it on our own, that means you're not trusting in him. You're not leaning on him. You're not looking to him. If you find yourself with this soul that just... You, almost, you just have almost like an internal narrative going on about how bad everything is. You might have this internal narrative going on about how much everything stinks and how you wish everything was different. That, that's a sign of you're not trusting the Lord, really. You might be speaking it with your mouth, but if your soul's not silent, it's not real. Turn to James chapter 1. Verse 2. Think about Joseph and the journey he's been on. Think about his brothers, too. They just received some affliction here. Rightly so, but they received some affliction here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. God doesn't tempt us, but he will try us and test us. Why? Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The full effect exists in Christ. That's why you can be considered perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But this thing that we see, where a trial and a testing produces steadfastness, and it has a full effect that's glorifying to God, is what we've seen in the life of Judah. It's good. And in the life of Joseph, it's good. So turn back to Genesis 45. Romans 12 says, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. Uh, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern that which is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So you see this picture of testing there, that you are tested, but you also test the circumstance. It's sort of this blurry perichoretical sense where perichoresis is the, there's a whole really great sermon on it. Then you need the whole sermon. But it's like this beautiful blur of God moving as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you see this testing in Romans 12 that's like God will test us, but in those circumstances, we need to test things and make sure that we're doing that which is pleasing to the Lord, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. Thank goodness. The tension has been building. Remove the mask. Tell them your name. Show your face. He cried, make everyone go out from me. You can imagine all I'm like, okay, we all better leave. You know, he's pretty powerful. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is not a guy saying... Go time. Guess who you're looking at, loser? (laughs) Joseph. Guess what that means for you? That's not what it is. He is emotionally overwhelmed. Emotions are a very real thing that God's given us. And here, we see these God-given emotions. He's overwhelmed. He is thinking, I can't hold it anymore. I just heard this appeal about my father. I can't hold it anymore. And to such a degree that who cares what the Egyptians hear? I'm going to show, these are my brothers. This is unbelievable. God is really good, and I, can't, I am overcome with emotion. So much so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Why did he ask that? What's well, what we talked about earlier. He can't believe them he can't just go on their word he just heard this huge appeal about his father and them wanting to tend carefully to how father is doing and he's thinking i want the best for my father too are you lying to me or is he really alive but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence what a bummer right You would think, man, this should be like a reunion. We're we're happy you didn't die. But because of their sin, they're dismayed at his presence. They're not encouraged. When he says, it's Joseph, boys, they're not encouraged at all. They're thinking, oh, what's going to happen now? What is going to happen now? I mean, really, import yourself here. Finally, Joseph spills the beans. He was overwhelmed with emotion. He finally asked the direct question, is my father still alive? Because until this point, he couldn't believe him. Were they just pulling for the sympathy vote? So why were they dismayed and encouraged? I mean, really import your senses, climb into this context. What would your feelings be? What would you be thinking if you're one of the brothers? (laughs) Dad's going to be mad. What else? Dad's going to kill us. What else? Yeah, if if Joseph doesn't kill us first, dad's definitely going to kill us. I mean, really, they're not just, I mean, I think dismayed is a really light word here. I don't think it was like, oh, it's Joseph. I'm thinking it's, oh, everything, everything could be done right here. This could be it. He just told us who he is. It's kind of like you see the shows where, where you're being held hostage by someone and they're all wearing masks. And at some point, one of them takes his mask off and looks at you. And you're like, I don't want to see your face. Because that means you're going to have to kill me before you leave here. Like that's on the movies a lot. That's kind of what this is. Oh, it's Joseph. Now that we know that, what could happen? Oh, that's not good. That's what's going on here. Now, look at verses 4 through 8. This is so cool. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Oh, he started off recounting our deeds of selling him into slavery. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He's like, don't even direct it this way, but try not to be angry with yourself. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. What an unbelievable, incredible, eternal, divine perspective. That's a perspective that's really hard to have. You've got all the power you want to put it to your brothers who messed you over. And he says, hey, God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God, Like, let me make it clear. I'm not here because you guys stink as brothers. I'm not here because y'all are heartless losers. I'm here because God sent me here. And this is where God wants me. And so I'm going to be all here right now. He's mentioned God four times. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. There's probably a little bit of relief in Joseph's brothers at this point, seeing that he was pinning this whole thing on God and not them. Okay, I guess apparently he wants to blame God. I'm not going to speak up. Y'all keep your hands down. Don't raise your hand. Don't say anything. But consider this testimony here. What have Joseph's actions revealed about Joseph's God? Sovereign. Purpose. That, that's good enough for me. Yep. Man meant this to be a bad deal. Man didn't understand all the circumstances. Man didn't understand all the details. Man didn't understand what I wanted. Sanctifying them. Resent. Sanctified and sent go together. Whenever you see sent in your Bible, now because of these last couple sermons, you can think sanctified. Whenever you think sanctified see sanctified in your Bible, now you can think because of these last two sermons, sent. They go together. It's really important for us to see the bigger picture here. It's sort of an important role that God's people have in general. God's people, children of God, it's really important that you see the bigger picture. It's really easy not to see the bigger picture. It's really easy to have distractions and circumstances get in the way to where you just want to be hacked off right now or upset right now or dismayed right now. But it's part of God's design that his children see the bigger picture, that we can see, uh, that we can acknowledge in the circumstance that what we can see is not all that's there physically because we walk by faith, not by sight. When we walk by faith, we will be an encouragement to those who walk by sight. Why? When we walk by faith, we'll be an encouragement to those who are walking by sight. Why do you think that is? Yeah? 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 Yeah, there's hope, and when you say hope, you're saying what you see here is not all there is. Hey, do you think this stinks? <laughs> I do too. Guess what? We're not limited to this. When God's people walk by faith, they're an encouragement to those who are walking by sight, mainly because sight can be really discouraging. Have any, anyone, anyone here tried to walk by sight for a little while and just thought, "Oh, this all looks great, fans, stinking tastic, fun week ahead here." Yeah, sight's not the most encouraging thing on the planet. Faith is great. It reminds us that all this is very temporary. It'll all get better soon enough. Joseph isn't just claiming to have made the best of a crummy situation. He could have just said, Boys, look at me. Brothers, I have set an example of how to take lemons and turn them into lemonade. I made the best of my situation because you guys stink. That's not what he said. He's claiming... uh, Stating that he really believes that God sent him to Egypt. This means that God tested him at Potiphar's house. I want y'all to see these details. If God sent him to Egypt, God also tested him at Potiphar's house. God placed him in jail when he was falsely accused. God made him wait two years after the cupbearer was released for the cupbearer to remember his name. If you believed that God had placed here, sent you where you are, what else does it mean that God had a hand in? Think about that. If you believe that where you are right now, no matter what the circumstances or where you've been, the things you've been through, if you believe that God sent you into those things and God placed you there, just like God placed Joseph in Egypt, what else does it mean? I mean, y'all don't have to share. It's a largely hypothetical question. But I want you all to think about it personally for your own lives. Think about the year that you've had. If God sent you into that year, what else did God play a part in? Because we make this mistake of thinking, all the good things God had a hand in, all the bad things are Satan and I'm mad about them. No. Here, we see that God had a hand in Potiphar's Potiphar's wife's false accusation, being jailed, uh, being uh, uh, forgotten. Being tried, he had to stand in front of his brothers a number of times too. He had to have the patience and the mercy not to just kill his brothers when he saw them. That was probably hard, given what he had been through. So in your own life, please give thought to if if you are where you are because God has placed you there. What else did God have a hand in in the process that you might be ignoring? Because there might be blessing there that you're not seeing. And it might be a sweet encouragement for you to recount God's deeds with your family or maybe just your spouse and think, man, God God is really good. If I'm here, then maybe God had a hand in this and this and this. Now, also know that where you're at doesn't mean that, oh, well, I'm here because God wants me here and I guess that means it'll never change. Joseph didn't stay in jail. Joseph didn't stay in a pit in the ground. There was movement there. Joseph was in prison and didn't just stay in a cell. He was given an office. That was pretty cool. So don't think that just because you're where you're at, also, that that's where you have to stay. But don't ignore God's hand in all of it. And don't be unfaithful in your movement forward either. It's really easy to find yourself in a circumstance where you're thinking, man, this stinks, And you want to remedy the situation in an unfaithful manner. Don't do that either. There are so many ways for all of you to be dishonest and unfaithful and lie and manipulate to get what you want. There's a lot of ways. Don't do that. That's unfaithful. Note here also that those who believe in the sovereignty of God. When I said, what does this reveal about God? The first word that came up was sovereign. He's sovereign. There's no one standing over God saying, what are you going to do? He is creator. All all other things are created. He is sovereign. For those who believe in the sovereignty of God, forgiveness should come more easily when you're afflicted. Forgiveness should make more sense when you're afflicted if you believe in a sovereign, redemptive, forgiving God. Someone can come at you as sideways, as sideways gets, and you should be able to forgive that person because of how your God is and who your God is. Does that mean all frustration will immediately be pushed to the side? Not, probably not. But you need to get to that point where forgiveness is not an impossibility ever for you. Now, I, <laughs> as I say that, I'm very mindful of the fact that uh, there probably are people sitting in here right now who have gone through more hellacious nightmare of life Circumstance than maybe I can even imagine. You might be thinking, you want me to forgive the person who did blah, 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 blah. And I want you to know, forgiveness is very real. And if you see God as sovereign and good and redemptive and forgiving, it will help you to not harbor anger or um, hold on to forgiveness, but rather give it when it is due. In order to have someone to forgive, you, there has to be a wrong. Look at verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children. There are details here. And your flocks and your herds and all that you have there in Goshen, I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen here. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So they went from being dismayed to their guard is down, he's not going to kill us, and we're going to talk. Here we see that all the testing was not for nothing. If you were frustrated with his testing that he kept doing over and over again, here you get to see this bird's eye view that, oh man, because of the way he tested, and because of the way he moved, and because the questions that he asked, and the circumstances that he worked, now all of the flocks and the children and the herds and the offspring are going to have this place called Goshen that has been prepared for God's people. And in Exodus, when we see all the plagues hitting, somehow none of it touches Goshen. You see this plan that God has in motion for years and years to protect his people. And so the movement that's sort of hard to see with Joseph, where you are like, man, why He's being a bit of a jerk. Why didn't you just forgive him already and move on? It wasn't a matter of forgiveness and moving on. It was a matter of we need to be wise in the way that we move because we're not just dealing with facts today when you're God's people. There are things years on that need to be taken into account when you're making your decisions and your plans. He's explaining a carefully outlined and divinely ordained event. Look at verse 16 through 20. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. (laughs) <laughs> That's crazy. It's Pharaoh who thinks he's God and Joseph the seer's brother and it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. <coughs> and Pharaoh said to Joseph, "So here, Pharaoh, who's the one guy who's stronger than Joseph, more powerful than Joseph?" Pharaoh. Pharaoh looks down his huge throne at Joseph's medium throne and says, "Say to your brothers, do this." Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and make and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Joseph, I'm Pharaoh. I command you to say to your brothers and sisters, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. Like, I don't want them to have to walk. Get them a good Egyptian wagon and, uh, and bring your father and come. Have, have no concern for your goods. Like, don't clean out the pantry. For the best of all, the land of Egypt is yours. This is crazy. The Pharaoh just commanded Joseph to bless the people of God. Awesome. Was it an easy journey, an obvious journey? Was it like a beautiful movie with soft music where everyone... No. It threw him into a pit. He thought he was dead. And here, the Pharaoh just commanded Joseph to bless the people of God. This makes me feel like my prayers are sometimes too little and too weak. The Pharaoh commanded Joseph to bless God's people. This is not a health and wealth movement I'm talking about. I'm just saying, look what God just did. Look at that. The guy who thought he was God just commanded that the guy who knows he's not God to bless the people of God. That's pretty cool. Now, look at verses 21 through 28. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver, probably enough to buy a silver cup, and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys. Here come the donkeys again. He's going to kill our donkeys. Oh, never mind. He's feeding us, feeding our donkeys. Now he's sending us away on our donkeys. Now we're coming back on our donkeys. And now the donkeys have been multiplied. Praise Jesus. Don't ignore it. To his father he sent us following ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the way to journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. What would they have to quarrel about? They're loaded. The family's going to be reunited. It's going to be the best reunion you've ever been to. They're going to they don't have to be in Canaan anymore. They're going to go to Goshen, where evidently we're going to get the best of Egypt. What in the world would they have to quarrel about? I'm going to talk to Dad. That's something uncertain. Yeah, do brothers really need a whole lot of reason to figure out a way to quarrel? No, they don't. I grew up in a house of four boys. We could be having the best time and someone's going to get punched in the nose. And it's like, well, that's just the way it happens. We were fighting. What were y'all doing studying the Bible? Why is his nose bleeding? I don't really know. We just found a reason to fight. That's, that's the flesh. That's just sin. That's the way it is. If any of you have boy, I say boys, maybe worse with girls. I don't know. Mine are only two and four. Y'all can let me know later. Um, but uh, here he says, don't fight on the way. Um, this is reminiscent, I think, of Eleazar's journey to Rebecca, where he, got it. he has to take some stuff to prove that he's not lying, and he tells them not to quarrel, um, because they'll find a reason. Um, they'll quarrel over who gets to ride the biggest donkey or something to show dad, like, hey, look at, look at these awesome gifts. I mean, they'll quarrel over whatever. Um, uh, let's see. Look at verses 25 through 28, the end of our chapter. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. This is a cool point. They're back with Jacob, and they get to share some really cool news. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. For real? Uh-huh, sure he is. Your son is still alive, and it turns out he's the president of the United States of America. Right, okay. Okay. Um, this is uh, unbelievable. Like if ever something was unbelievable, this is fairly unbelievable. And his heart became numb, and he did not believe them. Have you ever heard news that it would be so great that if it was actually true, uh, you, you have no response to that point just be kind of numb, like, for real? That's what his dad is saying. For real? Nah, I don't believe it. But then, but when they told him all of his words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent, All these donkeys with all these goods and all this preparation uh, to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. That's very different from going down to Sheol with his gray hairs. His spirit was revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. You imagine? Huh? Joseph, my son, is still alive. Turns out he's doing all right in Egypt. I will go and see him before I die. He knows he's at the end of his life. What a sweet way to end it all. I'm going to go see my son, who's in Egypt. Israel is blessed. Jacob's spirit is revived because of the circumstances that God ordained and caused to happen. Much is revealed about our God in this chapter. He is so incredibly good. He is sovereign He is moving in ways that we don't understand at first. Sometimes it takes time to understand him. He puts things in order where it's not an easy way to respond faithfully at first, but the expectation is faith. And he works his spirit so that that can actually happen in guys' lives like Joseph and the things we see with Judah. He's really, really good. And I will close with the phrase that he's really, really good. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, Not just that you're good, but because you're God. And... uh, We desire to know you more. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.